Welcome to the Crosslead Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Silverman. At Crosslead, we exist to help teams and individuals achieve and sustain optimum performance. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Vivian Greentree. Vivian is a Senior Vice President at Fiserv, where she's the Head of Global Corporate Citizenship, as well as the CARE Foundation. Prior to her role at Fiserv, Vivian had the same role at First Data. And prior to that, she was a co-founder and ran research and policy for Blue Star Families. Blue Star Families is a phenomenal nonprofit that strengthens military families and connects America to the military. Vivian has a PhD in public administration and urban policy. She's a passionate Navy veteran where she served for eight years as a supply chain officer. And she is also a proud military spouse and mother. In her nearly two decades of leadership experience across public, nonprofit, and private sectors, she has been a constant champion of community and employee engagement. Vivian was one of the first leaders that I met who had the passion, skill, and mandate to operationalize DNI initiatives at scale inside of a large organization. Her ability to connect these efforts to business value was the inspiration to have her on today's podcast. In our conversation, we discussed diversity and inclusion, future of work, gender pay gaps, how you measure the effectiveness of such initiatives, and so much more. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with my guest and friend, Vivian Greentree. So I'm super honored to have Vivian as our guest today. She comes to us with this, a massive amount of amazing experience. Vivian, welcome to the show. I'd love for you to spend a little bit of time you know, educating the audience here on yourself. You know, Give us a little background on like, who you are, where you're from. What, what, what sort of shaped and made and informs the way you think about leadership uh, going forward? Sure. And I think I'm a big believer that kind of hard work and luck, hard work increases your surface area for luck. And because I do feel very lucky to be uh, where I am doing, you know, what I do now uh, for a living. But I also know that a lot of that, even if, you know, it was hard work, but also it was a lot of luck. It was a lot of other people helping me. And so I think that definitely informs my view of, of leadership and teamwork. Um, and I feel a level of responsibility commiserate with how much I do think I've been given or how much people have helped me to get where I am based on that. And so, you know, my position right now is um, I'm the head of global corporate citizenship at Fiserv, which is one of the world's largest fintechs. And we'd like to think one of the best. Um, and my position um, with global corporate citizenship really looks at how we align or create a culture around diversity and inclusion, associate and community engagement, philanthropy, sustainability, because we know that those areas of diversity and inclusion, associate and community engagement, philanthropy, you know, where we invest time, treasure, talent, whether it's, you know, for business or, or community, when those areas are coordinated and aligned, that's really where you create high performing teams where everyone can say, I am a valued member of a winning team doing meaningful work in an environment of trust. Um, and that's a good place to be right now because we need we need trust more than anything to to sustain high performing teams through the unprecedented times. Hopefully, back to precedented times. Yeah, we do. We t- we we absolutely do. So, wh- where did you grow up originally? So, for, as the, as a Georgia fan, Georgia, and went to the University of Georgia on the Hope Scholarship, which again, I think you know, just thinking of early things that that inform my my outlook. You know, the Hope Scholarship was created to allow students 
who couldn't have afforded it otherwise to attend um, state, you know, preeminent state schools in the in the state of Georgia. So uh, wow, from taxpayers, I don't think I knew about the Hope Scholarship. So is that for every every resident of Florida that that's qualifies academically for the school? They they're eligible to. They're eligible, right? So the um, state of Georgia pays the tuition uh, for qualifying students to any state, you know, university, which really, you know, when you think of meritocracy expanded the opportunity for, you know, people like me to go to tier one uh, research institutions like the University of Georgia, which That's I think awesome. just, right. And I, which I think it just continues, you know, on because I, I knew that I was going to school based, you know, on taxpayer money, the same, you know, being in the Navy, you know, being paid by, by taxpayers, you want to really earn that. And then when you have a good experience somewhere or, you know, to who much is given, much is expected. You want to turn around and do that for so what others. Did you, what did you major in at, at Georgia? Oh gosh, that was so long ago. <laughs> Political science and journalism. Okay, and then and then you joined the Navy after after college. Is that what you did, or did you do something? I else? did, ironically, to get out of the state of Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> right, like, I'm, a, I'm Georgia to my core, but I want a little break. I, know, I, I really, it was like Dorothy um, after the Navy, you know, took us around for 20 years. There's no place I wanted to be more but than, than, than back, back in Georgia. So you joined the Navy. What year did you join the Navy? Right, so right after I graduated, 2000, 2001. So right before 9-11, basically. Well, yes, I'm, I'm a, um, a pre, pre-9-11. Wow. Okay. And then, and what did you do in the Navy? Supply Corps. And so I, um, so the Supply Corps school, funnily enough, was actually in Athens at the time, though I didn't know it. That's not why I chose the Supply Corps. But then my husband was aviation in Pensacola. And now both of those schools are up in Rhode Island, I think. So I, I served on active duty and in the, in the reserves in the Supply Corps. Mike, my husband was aviation. He did his his 20 years. So I was lucky when I transitioned out that, you know, I had things like my healthcare was, had continuity. Uh, I had a, you know, my spouse was still earning a paycheck. Um, I used my GI bill to go back to school uh, for public administration and really focused on that, that public service aspect, why, why people want to go into public service in the first place, how we can increase, you know, the antecedents towards that and then support them when they do. And you got a PhD, is that right? I did. Like many transitioning service members use my GI Bill, uh, but also at like military spouses, when you're moving around, you have small kids, your your spouse is constantly deployed. Um, it's hard to find, it's hard to go to employers and really sell that. <laughs> and so I put, you know, my eggs in the basket of if I can show that I have this forward trajectory that I have been doing um, you know, continuous learning, and then started. We I did um, help to found Blue Star Families during that time, but really it was around, you know, um, several military spouses getting together with these backgrounds in policy or research to say if we can present a cohesive view of the impact of service on military families to political leaders, military leaders, we can make the all volunteers, you know, force sustainable because we're supporting the families who, you know, choose to serve. You you got out of the Navy in what year? In 2013 or something? 14? <laughs> so I um, I got off active duty around, two, I think, 2005, and then did the reserves while, okay. um, because at the same time, my, my husband was uh, taking different orders, and so we moved around. Okay, um, sorry. So you, you got out in 2005. When did you start your PhD program? 2007. 
2007. Okay. And you were doing that while moving around. Yeah, well, by then we had, uh, we had moved back to Norfolk. So old Minion university is where I, uh, received my PhD. They actually at the time were sixth in the nation for students utilizing their GI bill, which isn't surprising. I think given that Norfolk's, uh, yeah, the largest naval base in the world is right, right there, there. <laughs> but they had a part-time program, which I think, you know, just for, for service members that are using their GI Bill or military spouses using the, you know, the transferability of the GI Bill, universities that do have that flexibility and they're recognizing that more and more students are non-traditional um, are the ones that are going to attract that, um, you know, that talent. Awesome. And then how long did it take you to get your PhD? I know for a lot of people, it takes a long time. It seems like that, right? It's an endless, but I think it, it took me about five years for the coursework and for my dissertation. So when I was pursuing my PhD, it was the same time around 2007, 2008, when military families were really being impacted by, you know, the post 9-11. Yeah, by then it's real, right? I mean, people have been going through multiple cycles. Right. And so it was really, it was, you know, impacting military families, the likes to which had never been seen before. At the same time, there was little research, little data to actually back up. If you went to your congressman or you went to your you know, military leadership to talk about uh, the workups, the, the deployment cycles, the time between deployments, the impact on military kids, things like that. So I was able to structure my research within my PhD program to align with the founding Blue Star Families, which is the um, country's largest nonprofit designed to support, you know, connect and empower military families. And so my kind of piece of the puzzle was to create a national survey of military families that went through kind of the wellness, uh, military spouse employment, mental health, military children, and the impacts of service so that we could, you know, create a global network of military families, regardless of branch or rank or active or reserve components. So that in totality, there was, you know, recognition that there is an impact to service on the service member and their families past you know, the immediate deployment cycles. Sure. That's amazing. So Blue Star Families, you started, uh, it, you know, what, what year was that? that you, so like 2009. Uh, 2009, right. And we, you know, it was, again, right when um, President Obama was elected and really made military families, you know, our research was a precursor to their joining forces. Joining forces, sure. Yeah, um, emphasis on, right, wellness um, and, and employment. Yeah, and it still endures today, right? Blue Star Families is still endures. It does. And so does joining forces under uh, the Biden administration. Did it take a sabbatical during the Trump administration? <laughs> Probably not, right? I don't think it right. Don't Certainly Blue Star families did. So that's good. Awesome. Well, that's that's amazing. Thank you for that, by the way. I know I know a lot of people that have been very positively impacted by some of the work that you, that you, you helped start and found back in, in 2009. That's a, that's a remarkable service and the country owes you a debt for that. So then after Blue Star Families, because you were kind of running that, my, I first met you, I think you were just being hired by by First Data, right? At the time, is that right? Or was right, it JP right. Morgan? I can't remember. No, it, it was um, because we, uh, which is, which was funny because you said, you know, talk about a little bit when you grew up, you know, I always thought, you know, SEC to me was Southeastern Conference. Um, now it's the Security <laughs> now, Exchange now Commission. It's, yeah. It's a, it's a governing body that regulates the, our banking right? system. Yeah. You're it's, like, no, they're no, both no. governing bodies. It's a phenomenal conference with amazing <laughs> football and basketball and swimming and soccer and everything else. Yeah. Right. But it just show, it shows, you know, kind of perspective, like where, you know, where you, where you come from it. And then just even your own bias, you know, since I know we're talking about 
diversity and inclusion today, we all have these unconscious biases. You know, mine was the first time I heard SEC when I was at a New York meeting, I thought, why did they care about (laughs) Georgia football? I thought, wow, we really are. (laughs) Right, right. I thought, um, why do they care so much? I mean, I think we're important, but I I don't know that that has a bearing. That's hysterical. That's hysterical. Yeah. Um, awesome. Okay. So, so what year was that? I try to remind me. When, when it was 20, so 2014, which, okay. you know, at the time, a lot of companies based on the impacts and recognition of the just huge amounts of service members that were transitioning out, were looking to start military programs, but had never really before, you know, thought or looked at that community as anything really maybe even other than if they had a guard or reservist who had activated and how to calculate that leave or, turn our, turn their pay on or off, but really hadn't considered that, that talent pool. And then, you know, as we built that program, it really taught us how, how to relook at human capital management, because, you know, when you're recruiting, for, when you want to show up holistically in the military community to recruit um, transitioning service members, you know, and their spouses, you have to have done, that's kind of like the tip of the iceberg. You have to be military ready to to show up in a way that's authentic and really can speak to why you know why would a service member or a vet, you know a veteran pick your company over other companies you know based on the benefits policies culture of your company yeah that's amazing so you first data was really at the time leading in my opinion the pack on like progressive ideas around you know some of these uh, these these different diversity groups and veterans Obviously, having been a vet and going to New York and, and and seeing some of the work that you guys are doing, I was always really impressed. You guys sort of seem at the forefront of a vet, veteran-friendly organization that saw the value. Can you maybe talk about, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people do it because it, it feels it feels right, right? It feels like morally and patriotically just to 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 support. But but I I think what amazed me about what, what I saw the work that you guys were doing first at now Fiserv is that. You really saw it as like a, a differentiator in how you approach business. And I thought that to me, that makes it more enduring. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Well, and I mean, even, you know, how quickly we met when I came to First First Data um, and we, you know, reached out to Crosslead to be our, our leadership development partner. It just shows how, you know, integrated the thinking is and and really wanting our, you know, our CEO, Frank Bizignano, wanted look to the military for leadership you know, the benefits of the lessons learned from the military community in a way that, like you said, many, you know, other companies want to get involved, they want to do the right thing, but they don't really see it at the very basis as a value add. And I think that's the, that's the difference because, um, you know, just expanding on that view, when we started recruiting veterans and, and military spouses, you know, we brought in more women, more minorities. And then it's not just about, you know, what is your garden reservist leave policy, but it's what's your family forming benefits policies? Where's your representation? Do you have employee resource groups that allow them outlets for expression and kind of, you know, aligning their purpose with your profit? Because we do know that diversity is a fact, but that inclusion piece is the choice. And that if the systems that a company has are set up that create obstacles or challenges for anyone to show up kind of at work, desk ready, you know, discretionary effort at the, you know, ready, then that's on, that's on the company. And we know that talent is just distributed equally, but what's not is that opportunity access and exposure 
And again, if, if, if it's the systems that are set up that are reducing your space and place in the, in the mind view of the you know, generations that are coming out of school or coming out of the military, they just won't see you because they don't see themselves represented in your leadership or in your products or in your services or, um, you know, in your, in your community investments. So, so yeah, that's, that's, it feels exactly right to me. Can you talk about how you guys have sort of, you know, mobilized these ERG groups to drive your purpose and, and ultimately, um, you know, value for the firm? My assumption is to address the, the issue you just talked about, which is like, how, how do you get people showing up every day, get being their best selves, right? So you're unlocking that latent potential that exists across your workforce. I, I think that's phenomenal. Can you talk about how you guys structure it and think about it and incorporate it into, into to Pfizer's operating model? Yeah. I mean, and I love that you said operating model because it really, you know, DNI has to be in the DNA of the organization. And, I, and as much as we talk about diversity of thought and experience, you really can't have diversity of thought and experience until you have physical representation of diversity at the table. And when you're operating and governance structures, those are essential when you're thinking about how you set up your systems for recruiting, internal mobility, leadership, you know, inclusive leadership models, even product development and and, and innovation. And that's where those employee resource groups come in. They're not the only lever, but I would say arguably one of the most vital because again, it's, it's your human capital management, it's your talent, it's allowing them and creating space for them to have opportunities for meaningful engagement in a way that meets them where they're at. And if you, you know, channel and target that towards whatever the thing is that your company or organization's mission is like for us, small businesses is what we do every day, you know, start, scale, grow, from Main Street to Wall Street. And our employee resource groups are right in there coming up with ideas for how to engage small, diverse businesses, how to support small, diverse businesses or social innovators within large businesses. How can we um, help our large-scale enterprise clients support small, diverse businesses, whether it's through their supply chain or whether it's through their products or services? And that's really, it's, it's that, you know, the systems view. Yeah, no, I think I think I think that's that makes a ton of sense. So, as we think about you know just some of the questions that typically come to mind when around the diversity inclusion topic, a lot of companies are putting a lot of effort into how they recruit, specifically trying to create a more diverse workforce. Everything from the senior executives, like you were talking about earlier, down to you know entry level talent, but they they're struggling. And it's 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 not just to find those people, but it's also to retain them once they get them, because it's become a, a you know a very competitive landscape. I'd love for you to talk about about that. Why does that happen? Why is it so hard? I mean, and that's like the crux, I think, of where we are. Because in the past, companies have said they're military friendly, but are they military ready? And I would I would evolve that conversation now to say companies want to be diversity friendly. But are they really diversity ready? And that's interesting. What do you mean by by ready? Right. So, um, in the same way, when you show up, if I'm showing up at a um, let's say a women in tech recruiting, you know, event, is it all males that are with me? 
Do I know the open positions? Uh, do I know our family forming policies? Do I know our benefits? Do I know if we have pay equity or we've had a pay equity review in the past three years? Mm. It's the, because that's what, you know, women graduating from colleges with their and coming out of the military with choosing between companies, that's what they're going to be asking for because they're, it's, you know, right. It's a hot labor market right now. And to differentiate yourself when you show up in an organ, you know, in the same way that we expect potential hires to come with a general knowledge about our company. When we show up and are recruiting, we need people, you know, our recruiters to have a general working knowledge about diversity and inclusion and what our culture is, what are our employee resource groups, what community partners do we invest in? What have we done? You know, what's our representation on the board? And I'll tell you too, that comes up um, not just with talent, but with um, clients and several, you know, several meetings over the past year that has been the crux of the, you know, the questions are, have you had a pay equity review? What is your representation on the board? You know, what are, what are your sustainability policies and how are, you know, how are you responding to social justice? It's really, it goes back to, you know, if you're looking at the recruiting process, the, the opposite side of that coin is retention. And it's looking at not just tracking new hires, but engagement, performance, internal mobility, satisfaction, and your pipeline. And that's where, again, the benefits and the culture are huge. Do you have garden reserve leave policy, paid parental leave, domestic partner coverage, anything that shows your employees that you are investing in who they are you know, as a person outside of work so that they can show up at work as their best self. And it's, you know, publicly facing statements, but that are backed up with substance. Um, that's why so many peer groups or criteria, NASDAQ, Stock Exchange, Business Roundtable are requiring, you know, publicly facing statements that link to documents um, around human rights or around social justice around your board diversity. Yeah, you're, you're talking about the larger sort of ESG movement. You're, we're, you're, we're seeing this even with access to capital, right? There's the, some of these institutional investors and obviously you know, large family offices that are allocating capital to these various funds that then make it available through various instruments are saying, look, there needs to be an ESG bent here. And if there isn't, then we don't want to support or basically have our money be loaned or leveraged for for these organizations. So I, it, it's actually, to me, having driving a massive sort of movement positively and, you know, towards some of these, these issues, which, which are, are no longer sort of niche, they're becoming more mainstream. Can you go back though to on the diversity side, I, I'm running a business, small business or large business, doesn't matter. And I, and I take an, a self audit and I go, okay, my pay is, my pay is, is, is equal, hopefully. I, or if not, I, I sort of fix that. But I don't have the numbers I want, right? Like the, the composition makeup still feels, feels off to me, whatever that, whatever right looks like, but it's not there, okay? We're like, we're underrepresented and we don't look like maybe the, the, the communities that we operate in or the services that people we provide. How, how do you fix that? How would you advise that, that leadership group to really try to address that? Would you do almost like, like, a, like a quota system or, or how, how do you think about that? So it's, you know, it's a marathon and a sprint because it really, for, for most companies, it's, it's, it's not an and, or, but it's a both, or it's, you know, multiple, uh, because it's, there's lack of representation at the top for sure. And you can't, you can't hire at L1 and expect in the next 20, you know, 20 years that something is going to be different on the, you know, L10 level. Um, and so you really need a, you need a strategy for both. 
And and then well, it, it's that and right. You're saying you're saying yeah. yes. Let's make sure our our hiring practices at the entry level are obviously right. equal and fair. But there's but that we've got to do something right. to address the mid and senior levels simultaneously. Right, and that's where it's you know it's percent of new hires, but it is percent of retention, and it's also it's it's comparing groups and having enough you know representation that you can compare uh, between groups to say you know is there something significant you know statistically significantly different in the way that women are voluntarily attriting from the from the labor force because we know that right that that did happen over COVID. Um, so w- within a particular company, you could look at that and say voluntary versus involuntary attrition. So give some of those stats. I, I don't know that everybody's aware of that. I mean, that, when I heard this stat a while ago, I was actually pretty surprised. It made sense once I thought about it. But like initially, I was like, well, COVID, if anything, has helped drive adoption in, around like things around work flexibility that previously were sort of were, were, were sort of relatively small time or niche. Like, you know, now I think it's much more widely accepted that you, you know, you don't have to physically be in a space from a certain amount of time. Like you, we've got, we've demonstrated the ability to be productive still in, 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 in a more flexible environment and flexibility should lead to more inclusive work opportunities should, should do. And- yeah. Because there, you know, there's a lot of, there's several, I think themes that, that did emerge, you know, going through COVID one was that more women attrited from the, from the labor force. So even though, you know, we were learning lessons during that um, time and even now on just the effects of, the, you know, your life external to your job affecting your ability to show up, whether it's in the office physically or, or you know, virtually in your, um, in your home, but that it did disproportionately affect women. But even, you know, we serve small businesses and we, you know, had numbers coming out of COVID that 40% of small minority-owned businesses might not survive COVID for another variety of reasons. You know, one, just all small businesses were affected, right? The ability to go go out physically, but they also were less likely to be able to um, access capital through traditional means or even the PPP loans be- that were designed to help small businesses, but they didn't have accounts large enough with large enough, you know, banks to take advantage of it or couldn't dedicate the full-time p- person towards filling out all the paperwork. And so there were these themes where, you know, we all go through the same event, life events, but but they are affecting us and impacting us in different ways based on you know our individual circumstances. And if there's enough of a you know population that is marginalized or unrepresented that is not able to then you know experience and come out at the same pace, and we have systems set up that are you know promulgating that um, that that is kind of the the crux of where we are right now. So we don't want to lose women from the labor force. We don't want to lose small minority owned businesses. And if you have, you know, your time, treasure, talent of what your company does can, as this inflection point can make a difference because of your benefits, because of your policies, because of even a focus on mental health, which again, you know, I think the military drove that way earlier based on, you know, combat experience. But now I've heard mental health and wellness mentioned more times over the past year than I have in the past 10 years. Yeah, no, it's a re- it's real to everybody now, right? I mean everybody's everybody's going through. I mean this has been this has been emotionally draining COVID for sure. And so I think people are much more acutely aware of the impacts it's having. Go back to, to the women if you want because I mean I think this is this is concerning, right? I feel like to the extent that we've made progress on these fronts, it feels like COVID was a massive setback on gender equality 
and representation in the workforce. If what you're saying is that disproportionately the people that left their jobs were were were, were female, I mean, is it getting better now, or how do we address that? I mean, how do we how do how do we make up for that? Because to me, that's that. I mean, one, that's awful. I've seen some stats that says, hey, the effects of this downstream are gonna are, are significant. Like 10, 15 years from now, it's gonna be even worse. Like the fact that like we had this major setback. I'm curious to see your thoughts on what you're seeing people doing, try to to counterbalance that. Knowing that Pfizer particularly's mission is to help small businesses thrive and address some of these 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 challenges. I'm curious to see, you know, how you're thinking about this. Well, I mean, we know so the gender gap existed pre-COVID. Any you know, anything else equally, COVID did did nothing but kind of enlarge that gap. Yeah, so widen the gap. It made it worse. It made right. It made it worse. And you're right. There's like that. It's a lagging indicator, and I, it will take years to to catch up to it. But then I also, at the same time, have great hope because of um, COVID did make us, I think, more vulnerable. We were certainly, you know, we're in each other's homes in ways that we had never been before, or heard, you know, heard people's dog bark or their children come in. Some people didn't even know, you know, or acted like people didn't have children before COVID. And the and the reality is that that impacts our ability to show up. And so just recognition that people are whole beings. They want to pursue purpose and profit and don't necessarily see, you know, with millennials and, and younger generations don't even really see a delineation between that. They actually think they, well, I'm like, they actually think, but I mean, they think that they should be able to pursue purpose within their, you know, profit seeking job. So you see these B cores coming up. I, I certainly think, you know, Crosslead is one of those where you're providing value more than, you know, leadership training. It's also opening the door to discuss things like, you know, how integrity and, and shared consciousness and trust, you know, so that you can have psychological safety on teams, which again, the military has done for years because you know that that does show up in your everyday. It does show up in how you, you know, you treat your team members. But I don't think that the corporate sector had that recognition. And certainly that benefits everyone, right? Whether you are a parent or a caregiver for, for, your, for your parent. Um, and, you know, that sandwich generation that is caregiving children, but also their own parents. And, um, and that, again, you know, it shows up in, in your productivity and your satisfaction and your engagement. And ultimately, whether you choose to stay to work at a company that helps you be the best you. Look, COVID's been been really hard on a lot of a lot of businesses. I, I know it's disproportionately affected small businesses and and from the employee standpoint, it's disproportionately affected affected women. Um, could you could you maybe talk about what you're seeing both at working at a large global, you know, 500 company as well as the the the, the small businesses you serve and, and and how executive groups should think about tackling this near term problem and solving the more the more systemic problem of of, of diverse and inclusive workforces. Yeah, because there are, you know, thematically lots of lots of trends that are emerging. Some, you know, like you mentioned, negatively disproportionately affecting certain populations. Um, but I want to also put a pen in, in that I do think that's a in every, you know, challenge is an opportunity. But first looking at the negative um, or, or populations that have been disproportionately affected by COVID. I think the Bureau of Labor Statistics just put out that there were uh, 2.2 million less women in the labor force um, in October of 2020 than there were of 2019, which, which definitely tracks within, you know, themes within the great exodus, the disproportionate effect of women, probably for things that have always been there around, you know, caregiving, 
for children, but also parents or, or just the, you know, the, the second shift that's talked about, about additional work at home. And we know that COVID, as you mentioned, the effects on small business, that it also disproportionately affect minority-owned businesses. So while everyone right. experienced yeah. the same inability to have, you know, in-person physical gatherings or shop in person, some of the or some of the small businesses that were let least able to react as quickly because they didn't have larger lines of credit or didn't have online or e-commerce options which we happen to know about because those are our clients so when we started to see the numbers and heard that you know up to 40% of minority owned businesses might not make it through covid in addition to the client services that we already had that's when we actually came up with our back to business grant to be the inflection point to connect those small diverse businesses with access to capital lines of credit, e-commerce, you know, order delivery to pick up, setting up online shopping carts, anything that we could do to to be there. And that's where when I said there is a positive coming out of COVID, I do think that there is an opportunity for companies to look at work life balance. So if you're looking at your employee base, looking at work-life balance, understanding that people do have lives outside of work that do affect their ability to show up at their best, and then design operating models that are more inclusive and holistic so that you can unlock, you know, because the whole idea is that high-performing teams, right? Whenever you draw the line of why does any of this matter, you know, at the very base, it's it's to make money to sustain your business operations, but to do that, you really have to take a long-term view of not just output, but outcome. When you talk about you know, succession planning, recruiting, market share, investor relations, all of that really depends on your employer value proposition. And so you know, I'm hoping that we come out of COVID as you know, a culture, but also globally, where we're more progressive, thinking, creative about how we create opportunities for people to meaningfully engage while pursuing both purpose and profit. And I think that that's exciting. There's a huge upside there, you know, unlocking productivity. You know, there's a lot of money to be made there if we do it right. But there's also some very significant problems short term um, that we have to deal with because companies are losing people every day. Yeah, no, I, 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 I just find it it's fascinating. This is obviously something that we obsess over at CrossSeed. I mean, our, our, our whole goal is to, to, is to make organizations more effective, you know, help them sort of unlock latent potential. And the exciting thing about, about COVID, the upside is executive teams are able to reimagine the way they work. They've had to just to survive. And they, so they've built muscles that they didn't previously have. They've, they've discovered technology and tools that they previously were, weren't leveraging. And those tools themselves have gotten significantly more effective. So I'm optimistic that, you know, the executive teams that are meeting in the boardrooms, they try and discuss how they're going to to establish an operating model that continues to to drive value is now much greater than it was even even two years ago. And so, and my hope, my hope in all this is that with those added tools, with those added capabilities, it's going to create a more flexible and inclusive work environment, which potentially could start to take on those more systemic historical issues of of, of mis- misrepresentation by gender or disenfranchised minority populations in, in the workforce because flexibility should be should be a key tool in helping helping keep some of those groups engaged for longer periods of time and, and, and continuing up the ladder, which I, I think will net just benefit our society and our individual companies tremendously. Can you let's let's switch now to how you basically assess an organization's 
uh, effectiveness when it comes to our DNI programs? I mean, if we take the actual the composition aside, how else? What other metrics do you use to look at DNI programs and see if they're actually working or not? You know, there's a lot of different KPIs, and and we've hit on some of them. And certainly, representation is is a, is a base. But there's also it shows up in your products, it shows up in your tracking, it shows up, you know, not just tracking though for employees, but suppliers and vendors, clients, community investment partners. It shows up in publicly facing statements. Uh, you, you know, going through just doing a catalog of of a company's website. Is there diversity in their marketing materials? What conferences are they showing up at, and who's speaking? at the conferences that they're showing up at. And then, you know, you, you mentioned definitely on the investor side, um, what indices are they showing up on? Because it definitely, you can draw a direct line for financial impact, or you can have the, you know, one or two kind of um, removed because engaged employees are more productive employees. They delight clients. So then you have client retention and maybe client gain. That's, you know, market share, increase of market share, which then increases, you know, and delights your shareholders. And so there is this virtuous cycle that that is created between um, that return on investment, that return on inclusion for employee engagement, client engagement, which, you know, makes more money so that you can pay your, you know, associates and, and, and increase your, your share price. And so I think those areas, it's everything in, in between. It's, it's, your ta- it's your leadership programs. You know, I too am excited about some things that are coming out of COVID. One, because leadership trainings um, and leadership courses like, you know, in, in organizations like Crosslead, you know, you're f- focusing on inherently an inclusive leadership model. And I don't think we've always talked about inclusive leadership, more leadership. And it's, it's really baked into the, you know, to have empowered execution to have shared consciousness and trust, there's those things you have to attain first. And one of them is is diversity. And then to me, your inclusive leadership model is what drives the inclusivity where everyone feels like they have an equitable chance to you know, join, belong, contribute, and progress. And we need that now more than ever because people are feeling dissociative with what they do for a living versus how they exist outside of what they do for a living. And they do need to build trust through geographic spacing because we're not physically together. We do need to address and talk about mental health and wellness and keeping ourselves and our bodies, you know, functioning so that we, we can show up at yeah, work. You're, and looking, I think- you're looking at performance more holistically, which I, you know, it's something in the special operations we've done for a long time and we still got a long ways to go, but the idea that like how you physically show up and mentally show up it has a massive impact in those, you know, mission critical situations. Right. And not every leadership program really talks about that. And I know, you know, Crossley does. And it, and that's something that, again, the corporate sector can benefit from learning from the military on that. What's, what's interesting for me personally in this journey is, you know, in the military, I probably just because I was overseas so much, I, I was sort of desensitized to some of these like larger social movements that were going on. I mean, just take, for instance, like social media, like I wasn't allowed to have access to social media when I was in the field teams, right? So like I come back and everybody's on Facebook and Twitter and, and like LinkedIn and all these, other, these applications. I'm like, well, yeah, I, I would never put any of stuff on that stuff, just given what I was doing and where I was operating. And, and in fact, I was always being monitored by good guys and bad guys. I just didn't, I just didn't do it, right? And so I was always desensitized to these themes. And then you're right, when we got into sort of the foundations of how you create high-performing teams and things like shared consciousness and trust and common purpose and empowerment, 
you know, they, and then how we think about operationalize, it became obvious to me that like, we had a massive premium on things like inclusive work environments. The fact that we have after action reviews after every op where everybody, regardless of rank, title, background, whatever, is obligated to give people their honest perspective of what happened on that op so we can figure out how to learn and then move forward. And we, you know, and then like there's fancy words like psychological safety that says this is what's happening there. I, I didn't know what any of that stuff was. For me, it was just that's how you operated because that's what high performing teams did, right? That's how, that's right. how, that's how you behave. And so, it's been interesting to see like, you know, DNI is a social movement. I think a lot of times where, where leaders struggle to figure out like where it fits into their, into their business model is they go, well, this feels like something I'm being forced to do because this larger social movement that I may or may not be, be, you know, sort of attuned to. And for me, the way we came at it was like, no, if you're, if you come back from something or you're about to go on something, you want to make sure you got all the best possible information and perspective possible because if, if 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 you don't and something goes wrong, then how do you how do you you know how do you ro- reconcile that? How do you rationalize that? How do you explain to some kid's mother or father why their their, their son or daughter isn't home because you know we, we didn't do our part in making sure we had the best possible plan that had the best collective of experiences sort of sort of yielded. So to me, I think just rethinking that in terms of that, I think goes a long way in saying, hey, the, you. Know, Wherever you fall on the social spectrum, like discount for a second, this has real value to your to your business and its upside. And yeah. you should probably do it for all the social reasons, but like the value, you have a fiduciary responsibility your shareholders to do. We'll stop. Like, you know, yeah. you, you need to find a way to, to, to make that happen. So if you think about like the levers that that you guys currently pull in Pfizer specifically to around your ERG programs to basically sort of address some of these changes. What are those? Maybe maybe talk about some of the unique levers that you've seen that are like, you know, pretty effective, both for measuring it and sort of driving, you know, improvements around around those areas. Right. I mean, KPIs just like like any other, you know, PL or or any other operating model, it has to be integrated into and baked into the very performance. And I I think um, so one having a culture of continuous learning and really a, f- a focus on leadership because when times, you know, progress does move at the speed of trust to everything you just said, and you really can't build trust in, in these inflection points of confusion and ambiguity and challenge. That's when you rely on the trust so that it kind of greases the skids for, you know, when people don't know what's going to happen, but they trust that, you know, your company, your manager, your team has your best interests and has the best interests of the company. And, and, and you're kind of commiserate you know, with the level of, of service that you're giving, that you're getting that back. And so you see that show up. And I know we said before, you know, um, the levers are, are within every single aspect of the organization. And you can look at it as, you know, clients and external learning and development, certainly talent management. And that hits on a lot of that retention piece and, you know, employee resource groups, internal mobility, professional development, your vendors and supplier diversity. You know, there's a reason, again, why we met so early, because we wanted to benefit from the lessons learned from the military community when we were building our own leadership and talent development program. And then it's your community engagement, your strategic philanthropy. What what are you doing, you know, volunteering your time, treasure, and talent? And it's always best when those are aligned because it's the first best use of whatever the company or organization's purpose is. Don't divorce that from, you know, the profit or the ability to have meaningful engagements for um, for employees. And then it's, you know, your those easy things like 
code of conduct, you know, your total rewards, your benefits packages. And it's, you know, it's less about, um, although I'm, you know, I'm jealous of companies where, you know, they can bring dogs to work or they have beer on tap. Um, but I think more substantial investments in pay parity, you know, family forming policy benefits, garden reserve leave policies, because what they're really saying when you invest in those high value things is that you're saying that I'm not as an employer forcing you to choose between serving your country and coming to work. I'm not forcing you yeah, to you're choose. Saying, you're saying, when you say guard and, 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 and reserve, you mean national guard. National and, guard and, and reserve. reserve military service. The, the, the policies right. are the company lets you go and you keep your job and that you can go serve your country. And then you, know um, you and pay them, pay, you know, and I, of course them. I have to say, because Fiserv has one of, and I, I always like to say the most expansive, I would love for a company to come back and say, actually our policy is more expansive. You know, we pay full, full salary. That's amazing. Uh, for right. While they're, uh, while our garden reservists are on their orders. And yeah. so, and again, it's saying that we're not making you choose between, you know, serving your country and, and working here. But it's the same, you know, with starting families and, and there's many ways to start a family and there, and it could be, you know, the, either parent or, or caregiver could stay home or, you know, so it's a, it's just a more, like you said, you know, progressive, expansive way to look at. I love that. Um, yeah. And you, and you can expand that. Like if military is not your thing, you could expand that into any type of community or national service, right? Where you're, where you're, you're serving and making a difference in the community and you're saying this aligns with the values of principles. Yeah. And then, well, and I have to make, you know, when you said levers or ways to, you know, to measure, I have to um, also mention because, you know, Crossley, you know, helped us so much with our, with our culture building and the way we looked at, you know, the pillars of where we, you know, time, treasure, talent, but looking at employee engagement surveys um, and having questions that have to do and directly ask your employees, you know, do they think they're treated fairly with respect? Do they think that they have a path to career, you know, professional mobility? Those are very important to ask on those employee engagements because that's, you know, asking the the, the people of the population that you're um, you're trying to reach. So even if you do have the policies, process, governance, whatever it is, but it, you're not seeing that reflected, then there's still a disconnect there. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So, so. Last question on this, and I have some fun questions for us. So you're the CEO of a net new global conglomerate that's you know a top five, top 10 country in the world. What position are you creating on your executive team for to, to basically address the, these issues holistically? What are, you, what are you calling it? And like, and how would you describe the, the role and the responsibilities of, of, of that executive? You can call me anything. Don't call me late for dinner is, is how I look at this question, because it is such a topical question that comes up across regions, across companies, across industries. I think the important thing is to have a seat at the table and, and the idea so there's of- There's going to be a seat at your table for an executive. There's, there's going to be executive on your team that has this as their core mission. Certainly. And it, and it would look across dimensions of you know, the entire enterprise, HR, product, operations, marketing, procurement, strategic sourcing, because depending on what industry you're in or what market, you know, you might be driven more by sustainability or environment, like with the energy, you know, with energy companies um, or gas, whereas in uh, financial services, financial inclusion, financial literacy is, is really what we do best. And so we know that part of diversity and inclusion is ensuring that everyone has equitable access to financial literacy. And so whether it's 
and it could be driven out of HR, DNI for for um, talent acquisition, or it could be driven out of marketing as a brand or philanthropy, a foundation for social innovation or social impact. The, the important thing to me is that there is that seat at the table and someone looking strategically across the enterprise, looking at how to have impact past economic outcomes. And, you know, Larry Fink, if you think, you know, that's kind of a bright eyed way of looking at it, you know, Larry Fink issues that letter every, um, every year for BlackRock and, and has led the charge at saying, you know, there is economic impact past immediate outcomes. And that companies, when you're talking about sustainability, whether it's environmental or workforce sustainability, you have to include this triple bottom line valuation to a company. And again, that's where it's coming from investors um, it's coming, you know, to be included in in the stock exchange or NASDAQ or to be listed on the S&P, different indices. I think more and more these these multinational companies that we're coming up with, top five, they are creating um, a seat at the table on their executive uh, management committee for it. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, ultimately, everybody's in competition for talent and increasingly the the, the talent that's that's both, you know, new talent coming into the workforce and or talent that's deciding to make a shift and and what they're going to focus on do is increasingly more aware of these issues. And they're going to see organizations that take this seriously as a differentiation and where they want to go spend their time, their energy and their efforts. And that's going to be a massive differentiator. So it's something that people have to get in All right. So, so I want to wrap this up sort of different than I've done previous ones. I want to ask, I'll say two words. They are things or they are people. And you have to say, you have to pick the name that that is right. So if I said olive oil and butter, which one do, would you pick? <laughs> Sunflower seed oil. Sunflower seed oil. Okay, that wasn't one of the options. No. If you're if you're if you're a chef and 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 you got a choice between olive oil or butter, what are you picking? No, I mean I, I sunflower seed oil because I I saw it on a TikTok. I mean I don't have okay. to choose. <laughs> okay, so you're going to pick oil then over butter, but you're just going to it's not olive oil. You're picking sunflower. Seed. Okay, got okay. It. oil over butter. Okay, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Oh, LeBron James. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's I love now. that. I love that. No, that's good. We're sticking with LeBron James. No, okay. that's okay. from that's from the office. Because I was gonna say Michael Michael Jordan because my son is MJ, so everyone um, assumes that it's Michael Jordan, but it's Mike Jr. But LeBron Mike James. Jr. LeBron James. Okay, good. <laughs> Messi or Ronaldo? Is it bad? I'm not even sure who that is. Is that? That's okay. That's okay. Just say, Messi or Ronaldo? No, Soccer. I. These are, these are football players. Soccer players. Okay. Well, I think that tells you my unconscious bias. <laughs> <laughs> neither okay neither, neither. Verstappen, sorry, sorry. Louis, Louis Hamilton or Max Verstappen so this is another hard one and I know you want one answer Louis Hamilton for sure except that when I first heard Max Verstappen's name I actually thought that Matthew Stafford who is a prior University of Georgia Bulldog had taken up <laughs> Formula One racing okay. and that he was in, in competition with with Louis Hamilton and the laughs that came out of um my husband from that, but so I, I like them both. Um, I love Lou, Louis Hamilton though. Who's going to win the national title on, on, on Monday? Is it going to be George or Alabama? Bulldogs, hand down, it, hands down. It's our year. Bulldogs. All right. All right. We'll, we'll hold you to that. Vivian, thank you so much for joining our, our program today. I, I, I think this is a, one, it's a timely conversation, but two, it's just it's so critical to how people and leaders need to think about, about some of the today's toughest challenges and, and how we address them. Can't thank you enough for coming on board. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. One more thing before we finish the episode. 
The Cross League Podcast is produced by the team at Truthwork Media. I want to make this the best leadership podcast available, so I would love to get your feedback. Our goal this season is to have authentic conversations with special operators, business leaders, and thought leaders on the topics of leadership and agility. If you have any feedback, suggested topics, or leaders that you want to hear from, please email me at contact at crossleague.com. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with a friend and drop us a rating. Until next time, thank you for joining.